This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Journey Within Podcast. I have a special guest on with me today. A lot of you will recognize this name for sure, Mark Kaiser. How are you doing, Mark? Great. I, uh, it's good to hear your voice, Mark, and I appreciate you giving me a shout. Yeah, no, I'm happy to happy to catch you. I know you probably got a busy fall coming, so I've been running all over the place. It's it's about to take off like wildfire, and I'm hoping there are no wildfires. But. Yeah, that's no joke, no joke. So what do you what do you have planned this fall? Uh, I'm gonna start uh, on archery elk. I was lucky enough with the help of. Uh, worldwide trophy adventures to draw an Arizona archery elk tag. So I am really pumped about that. And I, and I've been getting a lot of help from those guys. Uh, I'm actually even going to hook up with an outfitter for the first time in a lot of years. Elk hunting. All right. But, um, but I, I definitely want to, you know, I've, I've got almost two decades of time involved in trying to draw this tag, as you know, and, and other elk, you know, enthusiasts know it takes a lot to draw these tags these days. So I figured it was a good, good use of my uh, money, a good use of their time and uh, team up. And then I booked it for a uh, seven day hunt and that will leave me seven days of DIY on the end. Ah, so, gotcha. so I'm actually, if I don't tag out, it sounds like I got a good chance of tagging out, but what, what I'm planning to do is go down early as, uh, you know, as a person involved in the industry like yourself, I, I carve out these chunks of time so I can, you know, go on these adventures so I can bring it, bring back the the adventure and share it with everyone. Yeah. But um, I carved out enough time. I'm going to go down early, scout some areas on my own. I've, I've been I've got two good friends that just drew that tag or have been down there hunting as well. So I got their intel on one end. I'm going to be hooking up this outfitter on the other. I I think it's just going to be a great hunt. So, how many years were you applying till you drew it? Eighteen. Eighteen. Yeah. Wow. 
and uh, so that's that's the kickoff to my season. My the next hunt after that is rifle elk back here in Wyoming, and then I begin a tour of the Midwest of archery and rifle whitetail hunting. Is how I spend the rest of the fall. I don't have an antelope this year, even though I live in Wyoming, where almost all the antelope live. Uh, I didn't draw the unit I wanted to. And we had some winter kill. I'm sure people, again, that follow what's happening in the West have seen some of the reports. So they dropped the tags in the one unit I go to. And then instead of picking up a, another unit, I just decided I'm, I'm going to try and put my whole effort toward this uh, Arizona elk hunt and use that time in August. Right now, actually, that would probably be archery antelope hunt. I'll, I'll use that time for uh, uh, just prepping and, and getting everything else ready for the fall. Well, you, I mean, obviously that is a primo tag, so you should have a, uh, a great time over there. And I've, I'm talking to a few people in the West. It seems like a great growth year, right? With all the moisture and everything. Well, you know, we've, it, since about November of 2022 until a week and a half ago, we, where I live in Wyoming, I live in North central Wyoming and in Oh, it's almost deserty where I live, but right on the other side of the mountain range. Here, it is actual desert. We've had just unbelievable rains. We had almost two inches of rain just a little over a week ago in August, and that's unheard of unless it's a gully washer. And this was just nice, gentle rains. And uh, I'm looking out at my yard right now. It's green and Usually this time of the year, it's brown. In fact, I got to get my mower out. I never get my mower out after July 4th. <laughs> and here I am, you know, going into the last few weeks of August, I'm going to have to mow again. So, yeah, it's going to be good growth for antlers. It's it's a good year for fawns and calves, you know, elk calves and, and deer fawn because they, and in pronghorn, there's a, just a lot of good browse. So uh, I'm hoping even the areas that have winter kill, they're going to jump back good from from this good spring even though the winter was a killer i mean the winter was hard but it led to a lot of good uh, a lot of good moisture and a lot of good green growth yeah well let's back let's back up i'd want to hear the story of how you got into the hunting industry so take me take me through obviously when you were young i assume you're did you grow up in a hunting family that's the big kicker i really didn't grow up in an immediate hunting family I, i grew up in eastern south dakota which if you've ever been over there, it's corn country, a little small town. Um, my dad was an implement dealer, and I worked throughout throughout all the way through college, uh, actually almost running the parts department of that implement store. So my background is really hardcore, you know, ag. But I really had an interest in wildlife, and my parents would, you know, they they would feed that through going camping, and then they they bought a property in the Black Hills. They loved camp but then they got tired of the camper so they bought a property in the black hills of south dakota where mount rushmore is and it had a cabin on it so i kind of grew up part of the time in the black hills part of the time back in corn corn country and then i just wanted i always wanted to be outdoors and and then of course hunting followed my grandfather was a big hunter my uncle was too uh but i didn't go hunting with either one my, my uncle i never hardly went hunting with but my grandfather he was a handicap by the time I got old enough to home. He couldn't really get out of the vehicle much and stuff. So we'd road hunt for pheasants. Hey, a big tradition in South Dakota. Yeah, that's, so yep. no, no, tell me. Yep. <laughs> and uh, so we'd do that, but I didn't have anybody hardly take me deer hunting. Although my dad tried. He did take me out to the Black Hills, bought me a tag, and I'd wander around. But 
basically I was self-taught. And finally I, uh, uh, you know, what grade was I in? I think I was a freshman in high school. I bought a garage, a bolt, a bear archery bow at a garage sale. No lessons. Nobody taught me anything. Just went out behind my dad's shop with some hay bale, started shooting it. I killed my first deer ever with that bow and arrow in a cornfield in South Dakota. And, and, and since then, I've just been chasing deer and, and elk and antelope ever since. But to get into the industry part, I went to college and I was really torn the first two years, either journalism or be a game warden. Okay. You, know, I, you know, young kid, young guys and gals, they, uh, if, they're, if they're into the hunting stuff, they think game warden's a job. And it is a great job. But I slid into journalism more and I started freelancing in college, right at the end of my college. And then I was lucky enough, I got a job uh, with the South Dakota Department of Tourism. And from photographer, I went to writer. And then I went into helping market the outdoors and there i met people in the industry and that fed my freelance uh fever and i started really freelancing on my weekends and nights and uh how, there was times where i wasn't sleeping at all how, just, how, how old were you in this time period when you were doing uh, this? in my 20s okay 20s and then i and i did that i i worked at the department of tourism doing not only outdoor marketing i, I moved up into doing you know, marketing for the entire state, trying to draw people from, you know, all over the country and, and sometimes all over the world to come to South Dakota and spend their money vacationing. But, um, but at, at the same time, I just, I really was into freelance writing and photography and big game was my focus. Although I did do, you know, some small game, but today basically it's big game focus. And, uh, uh, finally after 14 years of government work, and not sleeping because I was freelancing in the evenings. I just, I never hardly slept. Uh, my wife and I made a decision. She, she thought I, I thought I could do it. She thought I could do it. And I've been a, a full-time freelance uh, outdoor, you know, media type person for more than two decades now, two, two and a half decades. And let's go do the math. But. So yeah, I didn't come from a hunting family. It just was a fever within me to go hunting and uh and and i had a couple of good breaks there met some of the people in the industry they like they could see that i was real you know that i wasn't just a like a you know a a media journalist that go they say go do a story on this manufacturer or whatever and so the guy goes and does and does a bunch of interviews they could see i was doing so much of my stuff from experience you know i i how to call a coyote how how to how to do a diy elk kind trip how to decoy an antelope and uh and they saw me do it. They they heard my stories and uh, they believed I was the real deal. And, and that's how I sell myself today. Just I try to be a real person and I hunt hard and I, I try to do stuff sometimes traditional way. A lot of times just however I can get it done, because that's the way I learned just doing it myself. And I heard you say earlier, this will be the first hunt you've, you've had a camera guy in the field with you for a long time. So obviously the majority of your stuff's all self-filmed, right? I, I, I do a lot of self-filming, but in, in the fall, I actually work with a television show called deer and deer hunting TV. They got a, you know, longstanding magazine, uh, on the shelves and, in a organization there, deer and deer hunter or deer and deer hunting, excuse me. So I do several shows with them a fall. I do contract hunting for them, and uh, and they send a cameraman in the field. So we just pick out, 
you know, three, four hunts. And then I actually do commentary on all their shows. I, you know, if someone else is doing a hunt, I'll say, well, this is the way I did it, or, or this is the way I, you know, I, I think things should work in this situation. And, uh, but yeah, I haven't done a lot of, um, having a cameraman, especially elk hunting. And, uh, and I've been, honestly, I haven't had a, been on an outfitted elk hunt probably for more than a decade. I, I just been doing a lot of, I mean, I, I live in Wyoming. I live next door to Montana. I, I can look out my backyard and see Montana. And, uh, so I do a lot of DIY public land stuff and a lot of solo stuff. It's kind of been my, uh, uh, I guess my forte is just do it by myself, mainly because I'm. It's hard to get people to stick with you that long, you know, a week or two in the field. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but so, so I, but I do, I do like last year I did a. We filmed a Montana mule deer hunt, and I worked with an outfitter up there, a guy I know out of Ecolaca, Montana, and J and J guides are really great group of guys up there, and uh, so I, I do guided hunts, but I just haven't done an elk hunt for. 10 years or more with an outfitter just gotcha. again just because it just didn't click every i could just do stuff on my own so as you as you look back one of the things i like to touch on on our podcast i get a lot on social media of how of advice to get into the industry um and it seems like everybody i've had on it always has a different path of how they got here i mean obviously not everybody there's shockingly a lot of people that have started at a cabela's retail store um, just in, just in my, my circle of a network started at a Cabela's and then found somewhere from there. But what would be your piece of recommendation or your advice to somebody that wants to, they want to be in the outdoor industry It's just struggling to find in that first step or what they want to do? Well, I would say the first thing is you need to have some sort of niche, something unique about the way you hunt, the way you are, the way you do things. And, uh, and try not to gobble it all up at once. And then the other thing is, the way I did it, and I, I think a lot of people do it this way, is don't just think you're just going to do it. Don't just quit your job, don't, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, unless you're a trust on a trust fund or something, you know, obviously that, that'd make a big difference if you got money in the bank. But just always try to be picking at stuff setting up your youtube channel or writing i mean I, my big thing is i'm still a writer and although that's changing it's turning into a digital realm right now but um but i still i i, I get more writing assignments than i can uh, take right now but um so try to try to find that niche something that sets you apart and then really focus on that to try to make yourself stand out there and, and that's why like i said i i try to stick with the um uh, big game, and I do a lot of predator hunting too. But th- those are my real big things: uh, white tails, elk, coyotes, a little bit of turkeys, and then I, I've got a. I have to admit, I'm I'm a shed antler uh, addicted junkie. I I go find I go to look for shed antlers all the time whenever I can. I was just out two days ago hitting a little spot up in the mountains. So uh, did you find any? I didn't that oh. trip, and that's odd because the trip before I did. And then I was thinking, oh, this spot, my wife and I, we did a little hike. And I told her, I said, I said, I know two springs ago, I was in this area and the, and the, you know, and the snow was up to my, you know what? And I said, there were sheds in here and I couldn't go the whole way in. And so we went in there in the summer and by gosh, I don't know if someone had been through there and picked them up or the elk just didn't go in there this year, but, but it was still a good scouting trip. We've checked out some water holes and 
uh, found we actually found some elk in the middle of the afternoon, bedded in some dark timber. Pretty good day. Yeah, still a great day. So on the on the writing, I mean, obviously because you've been you've been at it so long. Like, I would love to hear your take on just two two things, right? Like, obviously, you said it's, switch, it's switching to digital, just like everything in the world. But how has the type of writing that you were doing twenty years ago changed from the type of writing today? Twenty years ago, you wrote almost novels. Today, you write not quite short stories. Some of them are short stories, but everything is more condensed and to the point. And then a lot of, a lot of these uh, companies are trying to make, make a dollar. And I, I'm, I'm just like that. Or, you know, with everyone saying you and I were out, we all know you got to make a dollar. So they want to embed product or companies and stuff within the article. So, you have to look at that and see which company you fit in, which uh, which product. And I and I try to only and I tell com- I work with several companies, uh, you know, just personally. And then I try to tell these editors and stuff, I'm not going to promote junk. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll, I'll look at it if it looks sound, if it's something I think that'll work. I have no trouble, no, you know, no trouble at all writing about it but if it's something that's you know and you you know that you've been in the industry long enough too there's there's a lot of gimmicks that pop up and are are gone the next year just that just aren't going to work so and and you don't make it i'll say this is probably a good way to say it you don't make it 20 years in the industry by promoting things that you probably wouldn't use yourself or acting fake exactly i mean i i and i'm i'm a kiss guy not the rock group i'm Mm -hmm. a keep it simple stupid guy like uh i mean i i've got a single pin on my bow side of my bow and that's a little bit you got to be on your ball you're on your game you know to rotate it up and down um but still for the most part i just try to keep my archery gear fairly simple my rifle uh set up same way you know there's a there's a dozen different reticles and and range finding reticles and ways to you know set up your rifle and i i still try to keep it fairly simple and even with that you know last year i had a little bit of a fiasco elk hunting where i was just shooting a touch lower than i thought i was and it was all based on uh based on me just being you know amped up on adrenaline but it wasn't it wasn't still quite simple enough so but uh so yeah i uh a lot of new stuff out there you just gotta wade through it and see if it'll work the way the way you're look at it is this going to fit my hunting style? Yep. You know, this is the, this is the way I hunt. Will this work in my permanent hunting blind? Will this work while I'm still hunting? Will this work while I'm, you know, do I need to carry this up 2000 feet up straight up a mountain where I'm going to be after, you know, sheep or elk or whatever. So on the, on the distribution of it, um, I know you still write in magazines too, but how, like 20 years ago, it was all magazine. If you, if you had to pick a number, what percent of that hits digital down versus actually a, a print magazine? Um, it's probably uh, 80% digital now mm-hmm. and 20% paper. It's probably a flip from what it was 15 years ago, where it was 80% paper 15 years ago. And, maybe you know just when the internet was coming out 10 15 percent at most digital but, uh, and probably on your as your de- as your deadlines 
like back then it used to be a print deadline that you had to hit. And now I, it's kind of like, so we do a lot of uh, stuff like that too, to where it's kind of a floating deadline, right? Cause t- in today's world, you can hit send anytime you want to on a, on a new article or blog or whatever you're working on. It, it is. But what, what I see different in that aspect is a shorter deadline. It used to be, I could get mm-hmm. stuff four five, six months out. And I've got a few editors that do that yet. And I really appreciate that especially this time of year for instance this morning i was working on uh articles for november deadlines i'm I'm you know i'm working ahead so i don't have to worry about it when i'm in the field but but nowadays with instead of uh way out a handful of them sit and wait and what they're waiting for i believe and i've heard it a little bit is advertising they're start they're waiting to see how many advertisers are coming into that issue or onto that digital issue they're going to launch to see how many pages of print or of content they need to you know go back and forth for it so uh, uh, a- advertising equals content pages content pages equal advertising vice versa but so sometimes i got several magazines that only give me a month out now which seems like a long time but when i as me as a full-time writer i've already got a pretty big list of stuff i'm working out yeah. for that month and then you throw another you know 1200 1500 word article into there and then you got to pull pictures for it and edit it and write cut lines and uh, it adds it it starts to add up especially if you get a couple two three extra a month like that yeah no doubt no i'm just i'm not a very good writer like i'm fortunate that my dad helps me proofs everything i've ever written right my dad's just just he loves it the whole part of it. So we work as a great team. Whenever, whenever you see anything written by me, dad's touched that probably seven times before it's actually been, been finished. So I, so I always put it off. It sounds like you really enjoy writing. Like how long does it take you to write an article? You know, now, nowadays, and I don't want the editors to hear this, but <laughs> maybe it was a bad question. <laughs> I can, I can write a 2000 word article. If it's the right, topic uh-huh. in a day i can rough draft it in a day a lot of times i can rough draft an easy run in two or three days and then a lot of this digital stuff you know is a thousand words and i'll get up in the morning i get up pretty early i'm an early riser i'll i'll have a a thousand to fifteen hundred word article done a lot of times for most people are barely having their first cup of coffee so uh but, it, but that comes from experience, yeah. too. I mean, I live the life. So so if I'm going to write about calling coyotes, you know, right away in my head, it pops up three, four, five different examples of how this worked or how I screwed up. I read yeah. a lot of stuff on, you know, here's here's five elk failures you don't want to do. Here's, you know, three ways to screw up your rut hunt on whitetails or whatever. So you know, I, I go both ways. No, no. You know that as well as I do. Not every hunt is successful, and, and yeah. there's a lot of uh, learning in there. So I try to keep it, bring it down to earth. You know, I'm I'm no Superman in the field, and uh, things things go wrong. I, I learn a lot of lessons, but because of all that, I'm going into now, ugh, you know, 40 years of hunting experience, and there, I just got a lot of a lot of experience, a lot of uh, things I can draw upon to write stuff. And I and again, I write it about me and my friends, my hunting partners. Sometimes I interview people, you know, Mm -hmm. I'll call up somebody I've heard about, but I just, I just figure at this point in my life, you know, I've done a lot of hunting. I I can share my experiences. I I feel like I'm, I never say I'm an expert, but I feel like I'm in 
an educated failure and success at the same time. So, <laughs> well, I think you 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 hit the nail on the head there about learning from failure. I learned more on an unsuccessful trip or a mess up in the field than anything, right? Like if a lot of times when you you go on a trip or on a on a out in the field and you'll have a great day, right? Like everything just clicks together and it goes perfect. You know, and it's one of those things like you're not sure you're learning anything, but I tell you what, if you mess up in the field. You 100% remember that every time you touch the field or going after oh. an elk or any of that stuff. That's always in the back of your head. Absolutely. So do you do you bird hunt at all or just, just big game and, and predators? I do a little bit of bird hunting. Uh, I used to do a lot more. But... Sorry, <laughs> quiet. You can just say it. You need a signature? <laughs> all right. Have a good day. Thanks. Get it, Sully. Get it. There you go. Thanks, sir. All right, I'm clear. <laughs> yeah, so... Well, grow, grow, growing up in South Dakota, I did a lot of bird hunting. And then since I've moved west, I've just kind of slowed down. But I, I feel like as I'm getting older, I might start bird hunting more. <laughs> They're easier to carry than elk. So. I just... Yeah, I love the whole the whole thinking of the dog that you have made me think of it. If you had a bird dog, and I've got a couple of bird dogs, and just absolutely love watching a bird dog, a good bird dog work in the field. What I what I've kind of gotten into is um, my we got a dog, uh, our first dog, like oh my gosh, probably 13, 14 years ago, and we got a border collie. But I always wanted a and my kids were younger then I wanted a um, dog that I could take coyote hunting. So I started taking that dog and using it as a decoy dog and she worked really good. So this is my second border collie and they just pick it up right away that that's what we're doing. You know, when you start howling for a coyote and the coyote shows up and they, they defend their ground and you know, they run out to kind of tell the coyote don't come closer and then they come back to you and then the coyote comes back. So uh, I do hunt with a dog, but it's a little bit different than most people do. <laughs> I, I, I've watched some of those videos, and I just find it, like, as you explained it, right? Like, the dog almost knows exactly what it's doing. It's like, I'm enticing oh, yeah. this coyote to just get even closer and closer and closer, and I know what's going to happen to it, but I'm going to get it closer. Yeah, it's just, like, that's one of those amazing things that that you can train a dog for, right? Yeah, it's just, uh, and it's a lot of fun. It's just made my coyote hunting, and I like, just like you i'm sure it's just fun to have that dog out there as a partner someone to spend time with yeah. and uh they're just they're just a good pal so as um going back to your tags portfolio i know you've been applying for a long time and are getting up there in in some of the areas do you know off the top of your head what what some of the other tags that you're close to drawing are i i can draw some of the uh, medium to higher end Colorado elk and deer stuff, but not the top end yet. But I'm, uh, I'm getting into the numbers where I, I could get some pretty good tags there. And then Nevada, same way. I'm probably pull my portfolio here so I can find it. Nevada, I'm not too far out from uh, similar uh, for elk and deer as well. Wyoming, I do myself, but I will be drawing a Wyoming sheep and a Wyoming uh, moose here within the next probably 10 years at most. So 
Those uh, oh. the point creep on that stuff has been uh, pretty crazy. Oh. What do you what do you think on Wyoming sheep now? What's the number that you that that you'll get drawn at? That I could draw. Yeah, it'll probably be 20, uh, 25. Yeah, crazy. And that's as a resident. Yeah, just crazy. So, and and you know they changed everything. Uh, so. Which benefits me because they took more tags out of the overall pool and dropped them back into the resident pool. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, Montana's changing their stuff, Colorado's changing theirs. It's you know, it's just a it's a never ending uh, circle of change. And it, you know, you just wait about time to get your hopes up. Uh, then they again they change it, and it's like, oh no, and I sent me back another five years, and and that's something I tell all my friends and. I'm sure you do the same, but if, if you got kids, boy, get them buying points the minute they are legally able to start buying points. If, if you think they're ever going to want to hunt, especially something like a sheep or a, or, or even a, you know, a trophy elk, you know, what's well, uh, so we have the, so. we have the kids apply free over at WTA. And that's, that's one thing I tell everybody, right? Can you imagine if your parents would have started applying you for points at the age of 12? So, so I did that. I used the WTA with my son Uh and he's off in the military now, but he's got a portfolio. He'll be hunting some pretty good stuff when he's in his forties where, you know, I'm, I'm just barely getting there, you know, edging towards my sixties. So, and, and his body will be able to take it better. And, uh, uh, you know, just do, just have a better time hunting. A lot of these guys, they're, I know they're having fun, but you hit 70 years old and all of a sudden you're drawing some of these sheep tag, hunt, yeah. tags and going to hunt. That's, that's a hard, that's a hard, you know, hard hunt for, for your body. That's already been through a lifetime of ordeals and stuff. And, uh, but, uh, so yeah, so yeah, WTA does do a great job on that. I've, uh, I'm fortunate to hunt with my dad still and he's 78. So I see him go in the field and then I imagine some of these, these other trips that, that are just too tough, right? At 78, you can't do it. And you see other people, um, truthfully trying to do it in their seventies or, or sixties and you give them all the credit in the world, but you just think, man, could you imagine if you would have had the chance to do that in your forties? <sighs> what, what different experience would it be like right now? It's solely mental for that person. That's, that's older in the field that they're mentally tough enough to get through because they're not, their body's not physically enjoying anyone, any part of the whole adventure. No, no. And, uh, and, and I, and I've written articles on that too, especially on some of these DIY elk hunts I've done. Uh It's as much of a mental game as it is a physical game, especially once you're five or six days into the hunt, you know, that's when your body, a lot of times three days in your body's already telling you that, Hey, I'm tired. I want to sleep in. I don't want to do that. You know, 1500 foot ascent to yep. get to the basin where the elk are from our base camp and and it's just a mental drive and that's that's why i do a lot of stuff solo as i said earlier i i lose a lot of my campmates right around that fifth or sixth day and, and i don't even drive to camp with most of the guys anymore i just say i'm gonna drive i'll meet you at this spot i'll have a camp set up hunt as long as you want but i said if, if you know i'm not leaving if you decide you want to go because my my average, especially on DIY elk on public lands, and I've written quite a few articles on this too, but the average time put in is, is minimum of eight days, and it's usually 
right around the two week period to kill an elk. And, and that's maybe I'm not a great hunter. No, I think that I think that's just reality, though, right? If you think about the well, time, is, just I, getting in the field takes a couple of days to figure out where they're at. Now you got to try to get in their in their bedroom, right? Like it's, it's it, there's a lot that goes into it. Plus, you're going to have some bad weather days. Exactly, and this is a lot of these are general unit hunts, so you got all these other people they're moving the elk. Yeah. So then you got you know all of a sudden the elk you were on or disappeared, you know, because they've been pressured out of this off this mountainside or whatever. So. I'm a believer in using the best, and that's exactly what Gunworks rifles are, the best on the market. If you want to sharpen your skills and ability, make sure to check out their long-range university. From the rifle build to the perfect shot, Gunworks is your partner in the pursuit of long-range perfection, 1,000 yards out of the box. WTA Tags is a full-service licensing program available to today's sportsmen. Bottom line, they help hunters draw the very best limited-entry big-game tags. They offer professional consultation on where to apply and then properly complete and submit your applications to the states. TAGS has the easiest, most reliable, and most complete service to assist you in drawing that tag of a lifetime. For a free TAGS consultation, call 1-800-755-8247 or visit them online at WorldwideTrophyAdventures.com slash TAGS. That's WorldwideTrophyAdventures.com slash T-A-G-S. No matter where I'm hunting in the world, I'm always wearing my Mindel boots. I guess you could say that I sort of live in my Mindel hunting boots. And right now at MindelUSA.com, you can use promo code MPJOURNEY to get a free pair of socks when you order up a pair of boots. Again, that's promo code MPJOURNEY at MindelUSA.com. Now back to the journey within. Oh, so on the on the the do-it-yourself public land hunts, um, I mean, you probably have a pile of stories. So, what are what are some of the top stories that you can think of, or or times in the field that you had? Um, as far as weird or success, uh, well, let, let's <laughs> let's hear weird first, and then go to success because I'm more intrigued by the weird ones. I one time I I really get irked by ATVs and people who drive off trails where it says road ends here. So one time I, I, my son was with me. He was in high school then. He, I think he was a senior, maybe he's a junior, but we were chasing elk in Montana and come across an ATV sitting there. And I'm like way off a mile, mile in uh-huh. and driven. A, I, and I had seen the tracks. I knew someone had been screwing around back there. So I was sitting there. He, my son, he, backed up against tree and it was about 20 yards away from me just sit and relax and i went over the atv and i started taking pictures because it had the license plate and all the information on it and i was going to turn it into the forest service and right then this guy walks out of the timber and he he goes what the are you doing <laughs> with plenty of curse words yep and i and i just flat out said i, I said you're breaking the law I said, and and he started giving me this sob story. He wounded an elk, and and his mother was sick, and he had the whole thing. And I said, I I don't care if you lost your mother out here. I said, you don't. This is against the law. And I said, and I pointed my son. I said, uh, I said, and it's stuff like this that teaches guys like this, my son, bad hunting ethics yep. and everything. And the, and he really got mad. Then he goes, I'm about to kick your blah blah blah. And started walking over to me, and and so I turned my 
uh, I had my phone, or maybe it was an old, I can't even remember if it was a camera, a camera phone, but I turned the video on, was just holding it. And he was, he was going to come over and smack me. And then he stopped. <laughs> and I, I kind of out of the corner, I look over. Well, my son had stood up, and he's a big guy anyway. Even when he was in high school, he was already pretty, getting pretty <clears throat> beefy. But he had knocked an arrow. <laughs> <laughs> that, that guy was like, yeah, I don't need a banjo movie or a banjo <laughs> moment here. I'm getting <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so that that was uh, one weird event. So on that same year, then I was hunting alone. And I witnessed what so many people talk about. But I was on a big bull. I'd lost him in a high wind bugling. And then I, I guessed where he went and got up there close and found him and snuck in on him. And he had, he had moved in with his herd. And I was 60 yards, but I couldn't get a shot. And they were all watering. And another hunter snuck in above me and started bugling. And and you, it was just the most, you know, biggest educational experience I could have ever witnessed on elk. When that guy bugled, the lead cow lifted her head, looked up the hill where that bugle came from, and turned and whirled and started trotting away on a mad oh. dash. So she, she wasn't. I've never seen an elk do that at another real elk bugling, but she knew the hunting pressure because I had snuck in there without bugling because the bull had been bugling at his own enough. Uh And uh, the whole herd took off. Well, the bull was in the rear then and he was bugling at all the cows. Hey, come back here. Well, the hunter kept bugling and thinking that that bull was answering him, which in reality, the bull was running away with cows. But, um, but it was just, really cool to see that you know right there right in my face that you know hunting pressure does make a difference on these elk uh, I've and, hunted, and the and, go ahead i've hunted turkeys a lot to where that's the same obviously in the east we don't have we don't have the elk to go after but we've, we've got turkeys in the spring and you could definitely tell when you hit a pocket of turkeys that have been over called to um i mean they just lock right down and it's almost as soon as you try to call to them they're just tuck their head and just they're gone you don't see them again yeah i i i do do a lot of calling and and i love calling elk i love calling turkeys love calling coyotes everything but if an if i got an elk talking anymore especially in general units i i just try to go to them and you know work into their comfort zone and not even call if i don't have to and then just try to kill them while they're doing their little you know chaotic uh estrus thing or whatever mm-hmm. so but um la- last year i killed a bull in a general unit in montana and i'd seen a pattern where they were coming through this bench several days in a row i'd, I'd cut them off going on this bench but I, they would never answer me i could never get them to call so about one one day i saw a big six point come through this little spot at three in the afternoon i think it was no it was one i think it was one in the afternoon so then a day or two later i end up same area i thought i'm just gonna sit sit right here there was a kind of a crisscross trail set just like you would for whitetail hunting which is you know how i, I cut my teeth in, in whitetail hunting in cornfields sat down on this log i saw at high noon i saw a raghorn bull ghosting through the timber and i glunked at him with my tube just made some glunking sounds and one cow elk mew and walked right up to me at 40 yards and and got him there high noon you know set up 
hardly any calling, but just patterning them, real subtle pattern, you know, and and it worked, you know, finally paid off. So, wow. so um, that, that other that other bull, that world, or, you know, the cows. Uh-huh. So I followed them and I got to the edge of a canyon and I could tell they hadn't crossed because it was open enough. I glassed it. Uh, and I thought they they've just went around this their side hill in the mountain. So I kept side hilling and I hit a wall of elk scent, just bam, right in my face. And I'm like, well, they either just took a leak here or they're right here. Uh-huh. And I edged a little closer and that big bull was right below me. And I, I was able to kneel down, get a nice shot on him. And that turned out to be my biggest elk ever uh, DIY public land. So, uh, well, so got, that guy, what that do guy you, scared it off. What do you go? What, what was the score? I got to know here. Right at 380. Oh, wow. Wow. So I tell everybody 380. He's 379 and 7 eighths. But yeah, listen, round I, him I, up. I figured yep. I, I lost an inch of spine or more packing him out. So I figured I can take <laughs> it. I can, I can add an eighth of an inch there. Yeah. No, that, I mean, that's an awesome story. And it's one of those things, right? Just being in the field and in the right spot and being able to learn that by seeing it, right? Like that, yeah, guy, and, with, that, and that guy up the hill, he had no idea. He didn't know any that he was doing anything wrong. No, he he was just he knew the elk had answered him, and uh, that bull bugled twice after he bugled. They, they probably bugled back and forth to each other several times, but once the bull went up on the hill and around, I never heard the bull again. That guy never heard the bull again. And when I took my first load of meat out, I had to go to the trailhead where that guy came in on, uh-huh. and that guy he had already left. He'd given up for the day, so. So what are you do do it yourself um, deer hunts also right? Yep. Well, let's hear let's hear Although, some stories of those. Um, one year I actually had a guy film with me here in Wyoming, and we were having a heck of a time uh, on a pub or a private ranch because the deer would kind of blow through it was a narrow little ranch, and they'd come across one field in the morning, cross the private land, and then go up into some. Uh, other private i didn't have permission and i told the guy I said let's let's just go out in the public this other public area i know uh this is getting old we're not getting these deer killed <clears throat> and the other guy's my cameraman uh-huh. and we're driving down driving down the road to my house it's not far from where i live here and right on the road i mean literally in the ditch but on the private land of hayfield is a really nice mule deer buck with nice kickers on each side of his top forks. And I, and I took a picture of him out the window of the truck. And, man, it was just like, you know, darn, we're not going to be able to hunt him because he's on private. Got up early the next morning and got into this public not too far away. And I'll be gall darn if that buck wasn't up there with the does on the public. He had like 40 does with him. And that he went from those hay fields. They went back up into these breaks to bed on the public. Except he went down a deep ravine and the and the cameraman's going, Oh, sneak up on him, sneak uh-huh. up. I said, There's too many does. I said, I, I said, we're laying our bellies already. And I said, There's a doe there, doe there. I said, they're gonna get up and he's gonna probably we're gonna see him, but he's gonna be on the run. I said, just let's just lay here and wait. He's uh-huh. gonna come up out of that deep stuff eventually. And uh and I hunt that way a lot. I do a lot of crawling in the open country and and try to crawl up on deer. So I crawled up a little higher I you know, the cameraman made him crawl behind me. About two hours later, I buck finally stood up, hundred yard chip shot. 
He walked right up out of this ravine right in front of us, luckily. And I mean, it, I figured it was going to be 400 and under the shot, but uh, really good camera work and stuff. And and again, it's just it just shows people to me, you know, when I, when we did the story on that hunt, have a little patience. The the minute you start pushing these deer, then then you get all this chaos again erupting and uh it's it that deer may not have stopped once he got up and started starting away you know mule deer will a lot of times stop and look over their back but smart bucks don't i mean those smart mule deer i've watched them a lot of times they'll just they'll get up and go and they will not stop mm-hmm. at all so that's different and then I, big I, I do deer. a lot of yeah and then i do uh, a lot of hunting in kansas on a farm it's diy hunting my buddy owns the farm but we go down there stay in a farmhouse we all cook you know take turns cooking at night and uh setting up stands during the middle of the day if we want to change stuff and checking trail cameras it's that's that's a really fun time i i enjoy that and then i i also take my coyote rifle down and do a little coyote hunting when i'm if i lucky enough get a deer early so what are your favorite states to hunt for coyotes? Or is it just any time you can get out? Any time I can get out. But I do like Kansas because there's a lot of coyotes down in Kansas. Wyoming, where I live here, they fly with helicopters uh-huh. and planes, and they, they aerially shoot them. So it's, uh, they're trimming the they're trimming the numbers all the time, especially if they get a heavy snow right away early in the fall, like in November, December, try to get the numbers down before calving season. So the coyotes around here can be pretty hard to call, but, um, and I like going over to Montana. So I can hunt over Montana a lot. And then, uh, central South Dakota, I call over there. Some, I got a buddy that lives, uh, in the Missouri river breaks in North central South Dakota. Does your, does your, are your parents still in South Dakota? No, my father passed away a few years ago, and my mother lives in Arizona. Okay. But that's getting to be my my next goal is to get a bunch of my gear set up in Arizona and just leave it. And then when I go visit my mom, I'm going to go out on the desert coyote hunt. <laughs> ah, my, there you go. <laughs> that's, my, that's my next big goal. So will you bring your, your dog down when you do that? I pro- it depends. It depends if we drive or not. If we drive, I will. If we just uh, fly down, what I'm thinking is trying to get a rifle down there, you know, like a second or third type style rifle. That's not my main one. Uh-huh. Leave it there with some calls so I don't have to carry it back and forth for flying. But as I get older here, you know, maybe slow down, do get closer to retirement. Then I'd probably do more driving uh, and take the dog for sure. Well, retirement, you said you were almost 60, so you still got a long ways to go before you can talk retirement. <laughs> No, I, I may not ever retire, but I, I may slow down some. That would be my, uh, that's my end game. I don't, yeah, I don't know if I'd ever retire, retire, but, uh, uh, but I, I do know in the summer it gets hard for me cause I'm trying to open up my fall. So like this time of the year, I'm, uh, super, super busy trying to get every assignment I've got done. Like I said, you know, going all the way out to December 1st, I try to get that stuff off off my table in the hands of the editors. So when I'm on the road, like if I'm driving in the middle of the night from Nebraska to Kansas or Kansas back up to South Dakota or Montana, I don't have to have all this, you know, am I hitting a deadline? Yeah. Do I need a deadline? I, I just like to have that all off my table. And, uh, and I've been doing that for quite a few years now. It seems to work pretty good. 
or it's one of those things you're constantly thinking about it in the back of your head while you're in the field, which is the worst, the worst possible feeling if you got something like oh. that when you're trying to focus. And you know that too. You yeah, yep. you know that when you're on a hunt, if if you're truly a hunter, you're hunting hard most of the day or all day, depending on the t- mm-hmm. style of hunt. The last thing you want to do is come back at night, you know, and eat supper and then uh, and then sit down for an hour or two and try and do office work. It's one thing to sit and knock some emails out yep. or whatever, you know, but it's a whole nother thing to sit down. Oh, now I got to clear my mind, start writing a, you know, a 2000 word article or whatever. And uh, and then care, you know, try and figure out a photo package while you're on the road and all that. So, so I, I do, I do the same thing that you do. I get real, real heavy in the fall, obviously in the spring and the fall. So I, I try to like right now, right. I've got basically September 2nd, it starts and then it's nonstop for two and a half months. So right now I'm trying to get done of all the big projects and all the stuff that I can ahead of time. Because I know if any of that stuff's still lingering, it'll be one of those things to when I, when you're hunting and you're like, Man, I'm gonna have to take two hours off today. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to do this or, or or work on this, and it's just one of those things. You always feel like when you're when you take an afternoon off or you take a morning off, you're just lowering your odds, right? Just being a hunter, I, I lowered my odds by the whole trip by taking one of the even the morning or the afternoon off. Exactly. Yep. So, no, it, it's uh, like I said, it's worked out for me, and I'm I'm lucky. You're lucky. You know, we can basically do that Mm -hmm. with with our jobs we're a regular guy say working down at the co-op station or wherever you know it's hard for him to do it or a bank or whatever uh they can get a week off but uh but it's you know again it's our job for two or three months we got to gather materials for uh to get us through the rest of the year so yep so of all the all the places that you traveled now what are some that are still like what's your dream hunt dream location what do you still have left that you want to do? You know, in the back of my mind, I still, I've killed one moose in my life. I'd still like to shoot a moose, my bow and arrow. And I, I, and I'm going to probably have the chance here in Wyoming on a shearest moose, but, uh, but I still got to draw that tag. But Mm -hmm. that, that's one hunt I'd still like to get done. And, uh, I don't know, you know, every, every time I can go on an elk hunt, I just feel like that that's a dream hunt for me. I just love elk hunting. I don't know why, but, uh, I used to be that way with whitetails and I still love whitetail hunting and mule deer hunting for that matter. But it's, I don't know. I think I moved out West a little too late because I lived in South Dakota for half my life and then moved to Wyoming. And, uh, once I got to Wyoming, it's like, Oh my gosh, why didn't I move out here? <laughs> Uh, you know, when I was 18 or I could have tore the world apart, so. uh-huh. but I've been to Africa several times. I love African hunting. Uh, I wouldn't mind going to, uh, uh, you know, Asia, maybe doing some type of sheep hunting there. My son is in the military and I told my wife, I said, well, if he ever gets deployed to Afghanistan, which now is never going to happen, yeah. obviously that. That's a mess. But I told her, I said, I wouldn't mind even going visiting there. I don't know about hunting, but to me, that that topography and country just looks really intriguing. But it's, uh, it's so, I don't think so different than what we have here. I've, I've been fortunate to hunt in Pakistan, and it's, yeah, it's so like you can see it in the pictures, right? It's just rocks on rocks. 
but there's nowhere that I could compare it to in the States from hunting there. That's, that's the cool part. Like for me, I love hunting new areas, new spots, new locations, new, new species and so forth. Just cause I love, I love something new. I love learning as it goes, but like that, that's what I caught from hunting in Tajikistan and Pakistan. It's, it's, there's nowhere that I could compare it to in the States as far as topography and, and what the terrain's like. Yeah. I don't know. That's to me, it's just, it, to me, it reminds me somewhat. And that's why I like it is on the other side of the Bighorn Mountains here. There's what they call the Bighorn Basin, which is desert. Yeah. And that's that area I really enjoy running around in. And uh, and there's a lot of BLM land out there, a lot of access. And it's just a nice, dry, rough, rugged canyon, rocky country. And I don't know that the stuff I've seen, like you, like you just described, mm-hmm. it's, it's really interests me. So, uh I don't know. I'm, I'm game for anything, you know, that's what, <laughs> that's that's what it sounds. Oh yeah. That's, and, but, but that's, that's where my focus is now. I, I really like the elk hunting and every year I look forward to September and October for that. And then it's so, it's so nice. You can just move right into the deer rut right mm-hmm. after that. And so. so your, your, the moose hunt that you did do, was that in Alaska? Yeah. yeah. Alaska Yukon subspecies. Uh, that was a crazy hunt too. I mean, that, we got dropped in a camp with a uh a guy a, the guide was addicted at alcohol and drugs he was doing both in camp yikes we were right off the mcneil river bear refuge and it was in the fall obviously and we had brown bears just piling through the area you it was on average we'd see six to nine brown bears per day not per, on the entire trip. Wow. I mean, you'd wake up and you'd see a brown bear. We had brown bears within three, four feet of the tent oh. uh, on several occasions. And uh, and then I spotted a moose finally way off, miles off, just see the paddles out there. And I, I could tell it was, you know, a legal bull. I said, I'm going after that. And the guide told me to um, uh, F off. He wasn't going <laughs> out there. And I said, fine i said i i don't need anybody because it's alaska you can go unguided and the camp one of the camp helpers who was a juvenile delinquent i found out later was out there (laughs) trying to get recuperate or uh rehab himself he went with me we ended up killing that moose and uh i i set the kid because we ran into brown bears we actually got charged uh during the stock but i set that kid up on a rock and i said you because I was in Alders, I said, you see any bear, you know, yell, I'll do the moose, you just watch for bears. And it worked out pretty good. But we come back to camp that night in the dark, had to crawl through brown bear tunnels. I'm sure you've seen all that, you know, through the oh, uh, yeah. willows and alders. Got back to camp, no one's there. The outfitter had flown in and took my buddy, the addicted guy, the other camp helper, and flew him out, and and he left a twelve pack of coke and a couple of mountain houses because we were out of food too. We didn't have any nothing. <laughs> so, so wait a second. And, uh, he he flew him out. What was the reason he flew him out? Because because you went out there and tried to get that moose. No, he didn't know I'd done that till he got there. But he was moving my buddy to another camp where he said my buddy could kill a, a moose and a caribou. He was going to move me too, but since I wasn't there, and then he flown in, he's like, "Well, I got to get you know." I got to get in and out of here for dark. Yep, yep, yep. Then the next day he did come back and get us, and we didn't. 
but I got up on a rock and as I'm looking across the lake and then he told me as he come in, same thing. He, he, he goes, was that your moose meat under a blue in a blue tarp? And I said, yeah, I put the meat about a hundred yards from the carcass and then the heads further up. And he goes, yeah, there's a big brown bear bearing the tarp. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, I can see that with my spine. Oh. And there was not only that, that was a big boar apparently. And then there was like, four or five circling him just like sharks in the water wow so i never did get the meat and then they then to make it even crazier he brought three or four other kids they went to get my he flew me out and left these other guys in to take camp down and get my head out uh-huh. and see if they could get the meat and uh uh they went up to my head and instead of bringing the skull out they sawed the antlers off right through the pedicles, pedicles, not, not in the skull. They just cut them off. And then they, they slapped them together and put duct tape on them. And you ps them to me. It's like, could it get any crazier? Uh, sounds like a great camp up there. That's, that's one you'll oh. remember for a long time. That was an industry hunt too. I won't tell you what company took me, but uh, it was, it was, yeah, it was uh, it was crazy. So, but I I have shot a moose up in Alaska. It's great experience. Yeah, I did a, a do-it-yourself hunt up there with my dad and my brother-in-law, and uh, we shot. So it was just the three of us got dropped off, and and we shot two. And I can't tell you how sore I was after that hunt. I probably went down three notches on my belt. It seemed like all uh, it seemed like all we did was just haul moose meat nonstop. Right, because we're Eastern guys, and they'll tell you just stay by the lake and call. Well, we did that for a day, and the next thing you know, we're a mile and a half away. Next thing you know, we're across the across the river. We took the blow up raft across the river, and now we're a mile on the other side of the river. And that's that's where you get one, and then all of a sudden you spend the next day and a half hauling that one back to camp, get it hung up, and then I literally went out the next day and shot one too. And it was it ended up being like six days of nonstop just just hauling. Uh, yeah. Luckily, I was nice. luckily I was in my late twenties there, so it wasn't quite nearly as bad. <laughs> so, that, but I still remember coming back into Anchorage in my my I could, I was so skinny compared to what I was, and it had only been nine days. Like now, I look at nine days; it's not that long. And there, it was just like I had lost so much weight because all we did was just load on heavy packs and just hike. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a major major feat, and I I do a lot of articles on elk extraction especially and deer extraction is the same thing but you know if you're you're out there a mile from the road two miles from the road or whatever and you've got topography between you and the trailhead and you get an elk down especially if you're by yourself you you've got a huge job ahead of you yep and uh and so i i try to lay it out people as best i can how how i've been doing it last year i killed a bull on a steep slope here in wyoming and it fell off a little cliff and jammed into four or five trees a couple of them were big a couple of them were small and my i did have a buddy with me and we got the one side deboned and for the life of us and he's a pretty tough guy and i i try not to be a wimp but we could not get that elk unwedged from that those trees so it was cool enough that night. I texted another buddy of mine and he said he was off work the next day. So all three of us went in the next morning. It took all three of us to get that elk to get him out of unjammed from that tree, that little, you know, snag of trees there. 
so we could get the other side deboned. It was uh, so you just never know what you're going to run into. You know, a lot of times the elk will just fall right there, and you can debone them pretty easy. Mm-hmm. One guy can, but uh, it never hurts to have another guy no. or two, <laughs> absolutely, or three or four if you're really lucky. That's <laughs> yeah. Oh well, great. Well, what we're um, what I'd like to do is after your fall, I'd love to get you back on and and talk about your Arizona elk hunt and everything else you'd been up to. Okay. That's, yeah. that's no problem at all. I, I'll probably be in the, start being in the office again around December, uh, mid-December yeah. is, is what it's looking like right now. So, uh, anytime, anytime then January, February, I mean, then I just probably like you, you know, you start tend to go back to more office work. Yep. But, um, so do you, but, I, do you still go to the like shot show and everything like that every year? I, I haven't the last two years. Well, first one because of COVID and then last year I had some other stuff come up, family stuff, but I'm planning on this year. Yeah. I'm going to be at shot show again. Okay. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't been to them since COVID. Um, obviously COVID yeah. wasn't, wasn't there. And then all of a sudden I, I looked around during COVID and realized, well, my kids are getting darn old on me. So I actually started coaching at, at our local school here so I could coach my daughter's basketball team. So now I coach right in the middle of, so I'll get done with filming basically mid November. And then I'll hop right into coaching girls basketball until the first week of April. Wow. Keep yep. doing that. They, yep. they grow up way, they grow way too fast. I mean, yeah. I, I felt like I blinked and it was just one of those, uh, you're just running so hard. I think that's the one thing that COVID made me real is just running so hard, taking every opportunity you have. And then, then you're here and you look around and you're like, wow, my kids are old. Right. Like they're going to be, I got, I moved my first one to college, um, at the end of June here at the U of U university of Michigan. And all of a sudden I, my second one's not far off. And then my last one's going to be out of the house before I know it too. And then like, man, just happens way too quick. Yeah. That's, uh, it's crazy. I, <clears throat> my son, he's, uh, stationed down at Fort Carson now. And it just seems like yesterday that, you know, we were hunting together this year. I finally get to go hunting with him. He was, he was at West point. <clears throat> and so he never would hardly ever get out of there during hunting season. They just keep you locked up there. And then when he got out of West point, the first thing he had to do is in, in the fall, he was at uh, officer training school at Fort Sill. And then the year, the next year he was in Syria. He got deployed to Syria. And then last year he was deployed to, or um, yeah, he had more officer training so this year's the first time he, he drew an elk tag with me that we're going to get to go hunting elk hunting together for six seven years was the last time we got to go elk hunting together so oh, that'll be a special one yeah so i'm, I'm looking forward to that but, uh, yeah they grow up way too fast so. <laughs> way too fast well perfect well thanks for your time today mark it was great to, oh. great to hear the story and great to have you on Okay, I really appreciate it, and uh, just give me a shout when you want to talk again, and we'll do it. Sounds good. Thanks for all your support and downloads. If you like this episode, please go and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, as that always helps. Do you want to book that hunt of a lifetime? Then give the team at Worldwide Trophy Adventures a call at 1-800-346-8747, or if you want to start a tags portfolio for those limited entry tags, call 1-800-755-8247. Enjoy your journey.